Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The text is also printed in the bulletin. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. So, as we said during the announcements, next month we're opening up nominations for the offices of elder and deacon. So this month we're going through a brief series on church leadership, getting some basic ideas of what to look for in our leaders. At the core of any leader in the church needs to be a real faith in Jesus Christ, uh, a real vision to know God personally through Jesus Christ, a real devotion to the message of the gospel of grace, to seeing that uh, transform us as a community. The officer in the church is not there to call attention to himself, but like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, he's there to, to know nothing among the people of the church except Jesus Christ and him crucified in order to help others grow in their trust in Christ, grow in their obedience and submission to God through Christ. Last time we talked about how the elder must know the gospel well enough to be able to teach others and to be able to discern and expose counterfeits like legalism. And, um, and this week we're going to talk about uh, actually a big long list of character qualifications. <laughs> um, let me read a paragraph from our Book of Church Order, which is uh, a big thick document that shows us how we should govern the church and uh, rules for discipline and things like that. Um, let me read a, a part of chapter 8, which is about the role of the office of elder in the church. It belongs to those in the office of elder to watch diligently over the flock committed to his charge, that no corruption of doctrine or of morals enter therein. They must exercise government and discipline and take oversight not only of the spiritual interests of the particular church, but also the church generally or more universally when called thereunto. They should visit the people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. They should set a worthy example to the flock entrusted to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted and make disciples. All those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love are especially incumbent upon them by divine vocation and are to be discharged as official duties. They should pray with and for the people, being careful and diligent in seeking the fruit of the preached word among the flock. So this morning, we'll talk about the character qualities that an elder must possess, uh, that the congregation has to see in him before electing him and ordaining him to the office, uh, the, the kind of qualities that help him serve Christ in his office as a ruler and a teacher uh, in the church. Plenty of the people uh, in this world who don't know God through Jesus Christ have some semblance of these qualities, right? Uh, they seem like they've got their lives together and they're worthy of admiration and imitation, but Paul is describing Christian attributes that are brought about by Christian faith in the Christian gospel. These are qualities that have to grow out of an elder's grasp of the gospel, out of a transformation brought about by God's grace in order to testify to that grace rather than to his own strength of character, to his own morality. Right? 
And actually, every Christian is called to demonstrate most of the qualities that we're going to look at. Uh, most of these qualities are actually commanded several times in the Bible of all of God's people. Elders are called to no higher standard of conduct than any other Christian. It's just that elders are required to actually demonstrate these qualities. And a congregation has to recognize these qualities before electing him to office. So let's walk through the text, think about these things together. Um, it's going to be more like a list, uh, like a lecture, than probably our sermons uh, usually are uh, as we go through the list of qualifications. And just so you know, when you see the word overseer in the text, that's a, that's a word Paul uses interchangeably with elder. It uh, can, can also be translated bishop. It's all the same office to Paul. Uh, it's the office of elder. So let's pray, and then we'll read the passage. Father, we've come here this morning to hear from you. And uh, we pray that you would pierce our hearts, uh, that your, your word, that your grace would come to us in a new and fresh way to uh, break down our blindness, our self-deception, to make us actually hear what you have to say. We pray that you would do this work in us by your spirit and by your grace, so we would be changed, all of us, more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an, office, an overseer must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. So the first verse here, <clears throat> the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, it's, it's not really uh, one of the list of requirements or qualifications, but I do want to talk about it because it's fairly important in uh, the way that it appears here in Paul's letter. Uh, he does this several times, actually, introducing and endorsing a familiar saying kind of a popular saying that's floating around uh, with the words, the saying is trustworthy, right? Uh, there are, and this is what's going on. There are many ambitious men who aspire to the office of elder who actually kind of look to this verse um, to justify their aspiration, right? See, Paul's commending those who desire this noble task. In fact, many commentators uh, agree and they say, it's not a bad thing to want to be an elder, I think we have to be very careful here and not endorse just any motives for seeking office in the church. Because <clears throat> when you read the, the pastoral epistles, Paul's letter to Timothy and, uh, and then his letter to Titus, you definitely get the sense that there are a lot of false teachers. 
right, that are motivated by dishonest gain. Too many people got into positions of influence and authority. That's the problem. And his letters are corrective to that problem. You need to ordain good elders, right, to guard against these guys. You need better quality control with your elders. Paul's not saying, hey, if you want to be an elder, that's great. You know, that's a really good sign that you might be called by God. That's not what he's saying. He's almost saying actually the opposite. He doesn't, uh, <clears throat> he doesn't say it's a noble aspiration when someone wants to be an elder. He says that the office is a noble one. It's a noble task. It's, a, it's an excellent work. And then he goes on to severely restrict the office to those who truly demonstrate noble character that is above reproach. Paul's warning us to take seriously the gravity of the office. Everyone in the world wants more power and authority. Right? Everyone wants to be chief. That's a given. And usually we chalk that up to our sinful nature. Uh, John Stott wrote this. <clears throat> Paul is not condoning a selfish ambition for the prestige and power which are associated with the ordained ministry. He is rather recognizing that the pastorate, the shepherd uh, office, is a noble task. So if you want to be an elder, you need to ask yourself and you need to pray about why you want to be an elder. Um, I don't have a vote on this matter. Uh, Members of the church can vote about the elders and the deacons. Uh, My membership is actually held with the presbytery. My, My body of accountability is with the other pastors in our region. So I don't get a vote. But if you were to approach me and steer conversation and drop hints toward the fact that you'd like to be an elder, or if a family member of yours took the initiative to tell me that they think you'd make a good elder, I would be less likely to vote for you. Actually, be less likely, if I had a vote, (laughs) to vote for you, because this is not the time for lobbying or positioning to uh, put yourself in a position to get power in the church. This is what John Calvin says. The government of the church is a matter of so great difficulty that it ought rather to strike terror in the minds of persons of sound judgment than to excite them to desire it. If you're busy talking about how you want to be an elder, it makes me think you have no idea what being an elder means. Um, It's not about finally being able to get your way because now you're in charge. It's not about that. It's about giving up everything except for Jesus and serving him and becoming a slave of all. Slave of all. So a good question to wrestle with is this. If no one were ever to recognize you as being elder material, if you were never going to be in that position in the church, would you be offended? Would you be hurt? Or would you still happily and humbly serve? I was thinking uh, this week about who in the Old Testament would qualify for the office of elder, and it really struck me. Do you know that the great King David wouldn't qualify to be an elder, according to the list of uh, you know, Paul's qualifications here. None of the patriarchs would qualify, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. The prophet Jonah wouldn't qualify, bad relationship with the outsiders. 
So not being an elder is not the end of the world, right? God can still use you. Surely these men eventually were deeply humbled and rejoiced to know that God loved them and his plans included them in spite of being disqualified from this particular noble task. Since it is a noble task, Paul says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. I think we mentioned it last time. Uh, Let me repeat that being above reproach does not mean being without sin. That really is impossible. No one would ever qualify. Uh, What Paul is requiring is that a man has a clean reputation, that no one can charge him with anything scandalous that will stick. Uh, It's a very general term, and it's kind of a summary of the following qualities. So let's go through them. An overseer must be the husband of one wife, literally must be a one-woman man. This doesn't mean that an elder has to be married. It doesn't mean that he can never be divorced or widowed and then remarried. It's actually a really long conversation if you want to get into that. Another sermon, maybe. (laughs) Paul's talking about conjugal fidelity, right? Marital faithfulness. And he's forbidding polygamy, which was pretty common uh, in his day. If a guy's married, he's faithful to his wife, right? He loves her. He doesn't cheat on her. He has a good relationship with her. If he's not married, he's not a womanizer. He's not sleeping around, right? He's faithful. He's self-controlled when it comes to his sexuality. Now, like I said before, plenty of non-Christians might exhibit this kind of quality, right? Plenty of non-Christians might um, have good marriages, or they don't mess around uh, before marriage or outside of their marriage. But Uh, When you view Paul's idea of marital faithfulness here in light of his broader understanding of marriage, then you see how this becomes a quality that's motivated by the gospel, right? Paul teaches that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So being a good Christian husband, in Paul's mind, goes beyond the idea of sexual activity or the lack thereof, Paul's talking about someone who demonstrates self-sacrificial service in his relationship with his wife. Someone who gives up his comforts, uh, gives up his rights in order to encourage and to cherish his wife. Someone who owns his mistakes to his wife, who asks for her forgiveness, who repents, and who constantly offers grace to her as well. These are the aspects of a Christian marriage that can only be sustained by someone who knows the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. And these kinds of things should be visible in an elder's marriage. An overseer must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. These things pretty much speak for themselves. We're all called to clear, orderly, Christ-like thinking and behavior. But as a representative of Jesus Christ, as one who teaches others... On Jesus' behalf, in Jesus' church, and who is a formal ambassador of Christ to those who are outside the church, an elder has to display some measure of dignity. That's not to say he's arrogant or haughty. It's a humble dignity that comes when sinners, when broken people are helped to control themselves by God's spirit who lives in them. 
An overseer must be hospitable. This one is critical for ministry. Alexander Strzok says this, Giving oneself to the care of God's people means sharing one's life and home with others. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. So there's uh, there's something really interesting about this word, hospitable. Uh, The word is in the Greek, it's philoxenon. Um, You may have heard of kind of a similar word, xenophobia. Xenophobia is an unreasonable fear of foreigners or strangers, right? And this is the opposite of that. Philoxenon is love of strangers, right? Literally, love of strangers is what hospitality means. This isn't just having the same friends over to your house all the time gathered by some shared affinity, right? This is pouring yourself out to welcome people who are different from you, to help meet their needs, to extend grace and love to them. Job was a guy who would have qualified for the office of elder. He's actually, I think he calls himself an elder a few times in his book. Uh, He says this, the sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. In those days, there weren't really hotels, so travelers were often dependent on hospitable people for shelter. There might be a different arrangement in our culture, but hospitality is still one of the best ways to minister to other people, especially one of the best ways to warmly receive non-Christians, people who are different from you. Right? Uh, Lawrence Ayers says in his book, The Elders in the Church, hospitality does not mean just an open door to one's home, The hospitable man is one whose heart is first open to the lonely, the rejected, the alien among men of all kinds and in all conditions. So, in the last month, have you had any non-Christian friends over for a meal? In the last six months? In the last year? If not, uh, it could be an indicator of the fact that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't sunk deeply into your life to a point where you actually care for non-Christians. It's almost always the case that the more time we spend with Christians in the church, um, the less non-Christian friends we have, the less we imagine being able to relate to them. But really, the more you know your need for Jesus, the more you grow in grace and maturity as a Christian, the better able you should be to show hospitality to non-Christians. An overseer must be able to teach. We talked about this last time. won't spend too much time on it, but let me just say, being intelligent isn't enough. Knowing your Bible isn't enough. This is a matter here, this uh, being able to teach is a matter of special gifting and calling, Right? that not every Christian will have. This is one of those elements that not all Christians are called to do, uh, but the elders need to be able to demonstrate this gift, and it's, it's really a relational gift. It's an interpersonal gift of communication, right? I mean, that makes sense. If you're going to teach others, you need to be able to talk to them, right? If people feel socially awkward when you're around, 
Are they going to listen to you when you teach them? If they feel cornered by you or try to avoid you when they see you, are they going to uh, give you an opportunity to teach them? If you can't communicate the ideas in your head, maybe you've got lots of good biblical knowledge. Maybe you're growing in grace, and that's awesome. Um, but if you can't communicate that to other people in a way that connects with them where they are, then you don't have the gift of being able to teach, right? And that's okay, because not all are called to teach. Not all are called to teach in the church. But those that God is calling to be elders, he also gifts with the skills and abilities to teach others about the gospel and its application to our lives. An overseer must not be a drunkard. Paul's not forbidding the use of alcohol here. He's forbidding its abuse. Uh, John Stott said, drinking, as in drunkenness, uh, drinking and teaching don't mix. Maybe an obvious one. An overseer must not be violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Alex Strauch again said, Elders must handle highly emotional interpersonal conflicts and deeply felt doctrinal disagreements between believers. Elders are often at the center of very tense situations, so a bad-tempered, pugnacious person is not going to solve issues and problems. <laughs> he will, in fact, create worse explosions. Right? So a gentle person, on the other hand, is someone who's forbearing, who is gracious, who doesn't retaliate, who doesn't insist on the letter of the law or his own personal rights. He's a peacemaker who knows that true peace comes when we acknowledge our own sins and weaknesses, not just when I call out yours, right? We acknowledge our own sins and weaknesses, and we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ for him to make things right. An overseer must not be a lover of money. You can't seek office for power or money, right? Jesus said you can't serve two masters. It's either God or money, right? You can't serve both. And for elders, there needs to be no question that they're serving God. What are some of the indicators that someone's free from the love of money? Generosity, for one. And maybe we can't all tell that about each other, right? Um, but you can examine yourself in this area. Are you free from the love of money? Are you generous? Someone who's generous is not grasping to keep his money for himself, right? Money doesn't have that tight of a hold on him. Maybe another ind indicator is contentment, right? He's able to live happily on what God has given him, maybe even with a lifestyle below that of his income level, right? He's not in debt up to his eyeballs. He lives within his means. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So um, this is something we need to talk about a little bit, probably, because I think it's easy to misunderstand. Commentator George Knight says that uh, the elder's life must show that he is truly God's steward by displaying God's transforming grace. Family life is a crucial proving ground for this, right? So to be able to display God's transforming grace in your own life, in your family, with the people that you're with the most. And I asked a couple of uh, pastor friends this week what they think about this passage, and one of them joked, eh, I just wouldn't teach on it until the kids were out of the house. Um, 
the idea here that Paul's talking about is if, if a guy has children living at home, the qualified elder will demonstrate an ability to manage them which will be visible in their obedient behavior. Right? Um, now again, a non-Christian can manage his kids without demonstrating the transforming grace of the gospel. Anyone can manipulate or threaten their children into obedience, at least temporarily, right? But Christians are to lead their kids to the grace of God, and they're to lead their kids by the grace of God, right? Paul draws a parallel between managing a household well and caring for God's church. Managing is caring. It doesn't mean controlling others. It doesn't mean you run a really strict, rigid environment at home. It means that you love your family in a way that they're happy to follow. Because you create an environment of gospel joy, and you treat them with dignity. An elder's leadership in home and in church should be winsome. The kind of leadership that comes from knowing the gospel. If your view of managing your household is more like making good, compliant slaves of all of your family so that they'll reflect well on you in public, so that they serve you and make your life more comfortable, that's really messed up. Right? Fathers and elders need to be a little bit more like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings when Eowyn says to him, your men follow you because they love you. Your men follow you because they love you. So a good test in this area is whether uh, you have a good relationship with your kids. And really not just with your own kids, with other kids too. Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Starship Enterprise, great leader, but everyone knows that he doesn't like kids. So he's not going to be an elder in the church. Right? Do children want to be around you? like they would like to be around Jesus? Are you able to gently guide them toward faith and obedience? Or can they pretty much not wait to be out of your house? When they do move away from home, is it hard to talk to them anymore? Just like being a one-woman man doesn't require that you have to be married Having family care and management qualities doesn't mean you have to have kids or that they still live in your home. Right? If you've got big unresolved problems with, uh, from the past with your children and they're harboring grudges against you or you can't even figure out how to have a relationship with them, those are things you need the church's help with. Right? You need the church's help pastorally. We're not going to pile the responsibilities of the church onto a life of someone who already has a tough pastoral situation in their family and in their home. If you're oblivious to your responsibilities as a parent, if you neglect the discipline of your children or just leave it all up to your wife, or if you botched these things in the past and your kids are grown and out of the house, these are problems that need addressing, and you can come and talk to me. Right? You can come and talk to me, but... But if you haven't been working toward addressing these problems, then why should anyone expect you to deal with similar problems on a larger scale in the household of faith? 
He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The devil was condemned for his conceit, for his pride, right? For exalting himself over and against God, for pretending he didn't need God. A recent convert, someone who is immature in faith, is susceptible to the same kind of pride. Strauch, again, says, No matter how spiritual, zealous, knowledgeable, or talented a new convert may be, he is not spiritually mature. Maturity requires time and experience, for which there is no substitute. A new Christian does not know his own heart or understand the craftiness of the enemy, so he is vulnerable to pride. This is a Reformed church. So often you hear something like this in people's testimonies. I became a Christian when I was X years old. Didn't really grow much. Then I became reformed in my thinking and really started to get the gospel. I've known a lot of young men who became reformed, who were really zealous about the doctrines of God's sovereign grace, the truth that's proclaimed clearly in the scriptures, (laughs) who I call cage phase Calvinists because they ought to be kept in a cage and not allowed to interact with others until they calm down a little bit. I was totally that guy in my early 20s. Um, Actually, my friend JJ is here. We were at his bachelor party, and there was this guy, this Christian from this other church, and my opening greeting was, so what do you think about the five points of Calvinism? Um, I chalk it up to this. It's conceit. Young men are usually pretty proud. And young men who care about the truth, who think they've figured everything out, are prone to be really mean about it toward those poor folks who don't understand the truth the way they do. But Christians, like wine, get better with age. Right? The more they grow to know the devices and desires of their own hearts, the more they're granted to see through their own self-deceit, the more that they're made to truly depend on God's mercy for everything. Christians get better with age. And uh, moreover, and finally, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. John Stott says, "In, in his malicious eagerness to discredit the gospel, the devil does his best to discredit the ministers of the gospel. And Strauch says, the The devil is pictured as a cunning hunter, using public criticism and the elder's own inconsistencies. The devil will entrap the unwary Christian into more serious sin, uncontrolled bitterness, angry retaliation, lying, further hypocrisy, and stubbornness of heart. What may begin as a small offense can become something far more destructive and evil. So like I said, um, the more you grow in your faith, the better should be your relationships with those who are outside the church. I understand that outsiders, as a rule, are opposed to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said, right? If they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And there's nothing you can do about that, right? 
God has to change them. But it's like Paul said to Titus, we're to live in such a way that our opponents have nothing evil to say of us. They have nothing evil to say of us. You should strive in your interactions with non-Christians to clearly leave them with a feeling that you don't condemn them, right? but that maybe surprisingly you love and care for them. Non-Christians around you should be able to say, even if reluctantly on their part, that you're a good, kind person. Right? If we were to ask your unbelieving family and coworkers to fill out a survey that just had one simple question with a little checkbox, is Bob a kind person? They should say yes. Your kindness toward outsiders demonstrates as clearly as anything that you understand that when God had every right to judge you, he showed kindness to you and instead sent his son to die for you, to forgive you your sins. While you were enemies of God, Christ died for you. How then do you act around those who are still enemies of God? Are you friends with any non-Christians? How do the black sheep in your family feel about you? Do non-Christians in your life like you better now than they did before you became a Christian? Or do they dislike you because your Christianity looks a lot to them like self-righteousness? An elder is someone who represents a religion of grace, not a religion of superior morality. It's a religion of grace. Do you love the grace of God? Are you being changed by it? The elder's job is to see this kind of change happen first in his own life and then to promote it in the lives of everyone around him by sharing the gospel, by sharing his very life Is the self-sacrificial love of Jesus transforming all your relationships? Are you strengthened by it to confession and repentance of sins? Is your life on a trajectory of growth? Do you enjoy talking about Jesus with other people for their good? Whether the answer is yes or no, I'd love to talk with you more about it. So let's grab coffee after the service. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I am convicted by the high standards uh, of your word. The more I get to know you and the more I get to know your word and the more I get to know myself, uh, it seems the bleaker the picture is um, if you were absent from it, but you are not. You help us. You gave your life for us, Lord Jesus. You sent your spirit to dwell in our hearts and to give us courage, to give us faith and hope and joy and love for you and for one another and for those who are outside the church. You have filled us with all the fullness of God by your love and by your grace. And we pray that that good news, that gospel, that reality would sink deeper into our lives, that it would be more evident in all of our lives so that we would all live more and more for your sake and in your image to the glory of your grace. We pray in your name. Amen.